Gail and I are delighted to be with you tonight. We've looked forward to these moments ever since the invitation came some time ago and the thought of coming back to Evergreen, which has its own romantic implications to me because I grew up in my teen years in Lakewood and uh, a good inexpensive date was up here ice skating on the pond in Evergreen. And you hoped you could afford a cup of hot chocolate for your date and yourself and uh, have a good evening on the ice and maybe get a quick goodnight kiss on the way home. Uh, all those sort of things happened uh, uh, many, many, many more years ago than I wish to admit. In those days, Evergreen was hardly a block or two, and some of you are old enough to maybe to remember those days. So for folks like Gail and me who come back from New England and revisit on occasion, it's a shock to come through this beautiful area and see what you've done to it. <laughs> Very quickly, a, a moment or two of biography. My whole life has been centered on what people refer to as the church. Usually the word applies to a, a local gathering of people numbering anywhere from, let's say, 50 to 500, maybe in some places 5,000. Uh, I even know of some places around the world that would, would tell us that they have 20, 40, 50,000 people as part. But all of these are referred to in general conversation as the church. My father was a pastor back in the early or late 1930s when I was born, and I probably was in the cradle roll on the first Sunday after my mother and father brought me home from uh, the hospital. Uh, the story goes that my mother and my grandmother joined hands over my cradle that very first day and uh, anointed me with their prayer, gave me back to God somehow like Hannah did with Samuel. And when they finished their praying, my grandmother said to my mother, now Esther, you have your preacher raise him to be one. Uh, so you can see uh, I didn't have much of a chance. And uh, before long, when I was old enough, I was found on the front row as my father preached on Sunday morning and Sunday night because we were Baptists. And those of you who are not Baptists know nothing about Sunday night services, but for us, those were very important, and the place would be jammed out. They would sing for 45 minutes with the song leader whose name was Horace, and uh, not Horror, Horace. And we sang the old gospel hymns that some of you who are my age will remember where uh, everybody sang the first verse and the chorus and the ladies sang the second, the men on the third, and then we got back together. And it was a, a mighty choir that drew people together in those days, singing all four parts. It was wonderful. And then my father would give his sermon on Sunday night, which always had an evangelistic edge to it. And you knew that the sermon had come to an end when he would say something like this, shall we pray? While Christians are praying and no one is looking around and every head is bowed and eyes are closed, would you please slip up your hand if you want to come to Jesus? No one will see you but me. And we will pray for you. Week after week this happened. One of the devastating things to me as a child was I couldn't look around. And I decided if that's what a pastor did, if a pastor got to look in that invitation, I wanted to be a pastor. So I've spent my life looking around. But uh, like a lot of younger people in my generation, when I got to seminary down in Denver, a lot of time was spent being critical of the church. 
we young men, it was all men in those days in leadership, uh, we didn't think the old guys knew how to preach very well, that if they would just set us free, we could preach circles around them. We knew that the church was dying to get us into the places of being pastors. Little did we know how patient they would be about getting us into those places. But we would come back to seminary on Tuesday mornings, and at coffee time, we would often sit around tables, and our favorite conversation was about how bad church had been on Sunday. I'm not very proud of that, but that's what we did. And then one Tuesday morning, in the middle of a conversation like that, One of the professors came up quietly behind, listened to how we were talking for a few moments, and I'll always remember this. He took my Bible off the pile of books that were beside me on the floor, and he rummaged through the New Testament, and he got to a passage, and he put it in front of me, and he said, Gordon, would you read this to everybody around the table? Well, he had turned to the book of Acts, chapter 20, to a fascinating set of paragraphs that describe the last visit, as far as we know, that St. Paul had with the leadership of people at the church in Ephesus. It's a very moving passage if you haven't read it recently. It's very instructive. And toward the end, Paul says these words to the Ephesian leaders. I'll read them, hopefully, so that you can really digest them along with me. Now, Paul says, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I haven't coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You know that these hands of mine have supplied all my needs. I've showed you that by hard work we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself. And here's an interesting thing. As far as we know, this is the only place in the apostolic epistles where Jesus is directly quoted. So St. Paul says to these leaders, remember the words, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Interesting statement. I wonder if in the way Paul puts this, he's really saying to us, you can, if you want, Melt the whole gospel down to this simple conclusion. You are either a giver or a taker in life. And Jesus said the more prominent, the more blessed way would be to choose to be a giver. Now, as he talked to these leaders, he was talking about being givers. So let me go back a paragraph and read two or three verses here. Now, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you, you can hear this old man who knows that death is not far off in the future. I want to say this to you. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he has bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Now, I'm reading this to the people around our table, the professors behind me. And he points back to one particular verse, and he says, Gordon, read it again. Hmm. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. 
professor says, Gordon, read it again. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Read it again. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. And I probably read it three or four more times. And then the professor said to me, what do you think of the church now that you've read these words? Well, it sounds like the word, the church, is precious. How would you know? Well, because he bought it. For how much? With his own blood. I had never seen that verse before. I had never thought about the implications. I'd been taught, perhaps as you have been, in our evangelical context, that Jesus died for me. Oh, and he died for you too. But I'd never heard anybody say Jesus died for the church. That there was something precious about these gatherings in the many, shall we say, millions scattered around the world in every language group, in every economic classification, in every town and village, churches purchased with the blood of Christ. I would suggest to you, as I look back on my own life, that that verse made me a pastor. When I left that conversation that day, I had a whole new view of what it's like to be part of something. And Jesus simplifies it in his words. When two or three or more are gathered together in my name, I am in the midst of them. That elevates the notion of this idea of church to stratospheric levels. It takes it away from you and I thinking of the church as a club or an organization or some group of people who simply does nice things in their community. It suddenly says, of all the institutions that you and I frequent over a lifetime, this thing called the church is unique. It is sacred. It has a place in this world that few will ever appreciate. But it is the place where God speaks most loudly, most compellingly. It needs to be protected. It needs to be well-led. And every church will have occasional moments when its life together will be taught, uh, will be tested. For example, in this Ephesian congregation, as I read through these paragraphs, and I only read you a few lines, it occurs to me that this church is about to experience a massive jolt. That's my word for the night. It's not a theological word, but it's a word that represents something that happens as routine is suddenly interrupted. And for a moment, something happens that has never happened before. And in that moment, there will be turbulence. There's likely to be some confusion. There could even be conflict. But in the best sense of the word, out of that jolting moment, God wills to bring something better, something more effective, something deeper. And so all the way through this book of Acts, you have a whole chain of jolts because of pain, because of persecution, because of conflict, because of opportunity. And the one we're reading here is a sample of jolts. As Paul says to this group of people In Ephesus, I'm going to die. You won't see me again. You can no longer depend upon a fresh word from me. You're going to have to look elsewhere for your leadership. You're going to have to be new level leaders yourself, filling in the gaps that I leave as I disappear from you. Last thing I want to say about this paragraph is that at the end, the writer says, when he said this, 
Paul knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him. Don't undersell the power of that word wept. I suspect that these men were sobbing, that they were convulsive in their weeping, in their grieving. This man who had introduced them to Jesus, who had helped them to form and stabilize their church, they were never going to see him again. Talk about a jolt. And you can imagine that in that moment there's a sense of vacuousness as each of them says to the others, what are we going to do now? Who's going to be the one who looks among us and helps us to find the new directions? All the way down through the history of the Christian movement over these 2,000 years since that happened, the church has been going through huge universal jolts And inside the church, in each of these collections of societies, each little church has gone through varying and sundry jolts of its own. Some churches get destroyed by jolts. They never recover from them. Other churches get new insight and gain new strength that they never would have had before. Would you allow me for about three minutes to offer a little bit of a history lesson of some of the jolts which have marked the Christian movement down through 20 centuries? Well, we have this first jolt when all of the apostles finally die out, and you have the first two or three centuries in the life of the Christian movement, and it's a ragtag period of time. The church grows fiercely, fast, uh, tumultuously, and all over the known world over the next 300 years, you find these bodies of people, usually quite small, Christian people, and they don't have a sophisticated leadership. They don't have a heavily theological leadership. They only really basically know at the core one basic thing, the story of Jesus, the centrality of the cross, the importance of forgiving sin, and the outcome of this, being people who knew how to serve others in their communities, not always preaching words, but being faithful servants of the gospel of love. When... There were disasters like droughts and diseases and warfare. uh, And all the pagans ran to the hills out of self-protection. It was the Christians who stayed behind and nursed people back to health and buried the dead and undertook responsibility for the uh, widows and the orphans. That, That was Christianity in those first three centuries. And the church grew like wildfire. Has it, the world responded to the loving community of people who call themselves followers of Christ. Then another jolt comes along in the name of a man by the name of Constantine, one of the Roman emperors, who, for various reasons we don't need to go into here, decides one day that he will legitimize Christianity as a major institutional position in all of the Roman society. Overnight, Christians can now start building buildings like this one. Overnight, people can start employing pastors and bishops. Overnight, the church becomes an organization that's fully visible in these cities and towns and villages. Let me ask you a question for a moment. If you woke up one morning and got a warning copy of the New York Times and it said on the headlines, the emperor has suddenly made Christianity legitimate, would that be good news or bad news? That's a fun conversation to have, and you can go either direction. I vote that it is like bad news because the Christian movement is an insurgent movement that does best when it's unaccepted by the larger 
majority of people in society. So you could argue and have a lot of fun with the conversation that Constantine's decision, which to some seem like a great miracle of God, was in fact something that hampered the church from following the mission that Jesus had given to it. Now, you go from the time of Constantine, and, and I'm going to be really quick here, and you go about eight or 900 years later in history to the 15th century, and along comes a man by the name of Martin Luther, and he takes a whole fresh look at the New Testament gospel and says to the people in his generation, there's something we're missing very, very seriously. And, of course, those of us who know a little bit about Luther know that he's recovering, he's refining the gospel of grace, the centrality of scripture, the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins. And in a 50-year period, Europe explodes. Why did that happen? Was Luther the only person who was thinking of these thoughts? No, he wasn't. But he came along at the same time that the printing press was invented along at the same time that people were beginning to explore this place called the New World. He was, came along at a time when Europe was beginning to reorganize itself away from the, the years of the feudals to the years of the nation states, where there were now large economies, and things could happen that could not have happened for the previous eight or 900 years. And out of that, God brings this incredible resurgence in the Christian movement that we now call the Reformation. And we are still affected in various and sundry ways by that jolt which hit the worldwide church. You get another jolt like that in the early 1800s. Very interestingly, it's nursed along by the discovery of navigational principles that allow ships now to go predictably around the world into all the oceans. And as these ships travel and as trade advances in the 1700s, the English Christians begin to hear about all kinds of groups of people who have never heard the gospel of Christ. A man by the name of William Carey stands up in a minister's meeting and challenges leaders in the church of his time that we need to get out into these parts of the world that have never heard the name of Jesus. And what you get is the beginning of the modern missionary movement, which we all assume has always been there. No, it really hasn't always been there. It's been there since the days of people like Carey and others like him, who because of the technology of that day, God uses to help them to discover new possibilities for the church. Then you have another jolt around, let's say, the 1900s to 1920 with the uh, emergence of the automobile and the mobility of people who no longer have to just stay in their own little community but can now go further and further distances to other churches and make choices. You have the emergence of the radio in the 1920s and a whole interesting plethora of electronic technologies that help the church to understand one more way in one more fashion about how the gospel can be spread and people can be drawn to the story of Jesus. Then in the 1960s, another very interesting thing begins to happen. President Eisenhower gives us the interstate highway system. You ever ask yourself what difference that made in life for us all? It makes it possible to drive 20, 30 miles with impunity wherever you want to go. A person like Kemmons Wilson said, we can now have hotels on all of the exit points around cities. And now we have the Holiday Inns. 
And there are certain visionary Christian leaders who look at the Holiday Inns and say, you know, we could have churches right next to those hotels. We could have big churches. Peter Drucker, the management philosopher, has begun to teach Christian leaders how to manage large, sophisticated organizations. The computer is coming along that helps us to crunch information about people. And this all collides in the 1970s and 80s, and suddenly we have the emergence of the mega church. These churches of thousands of people who could never have come together like that before 1960 in most parts of the world. Earlier generations could not begin to dream of the things that you and I take for granted about the way Christians do things in the world. And now we're probably into another one of these major shifts, jolts, as I referred to them before, as a whole new generation of leadership is trying to figure out what does all of this new software mean, social networking, the ways of communicating, connecting, doing things that we've never, ever faced What do we do with the fact that in the last 110 years, that in the West, people have almost doubled their life expectancy in the year 1900? Most people thought that they would live until 48 or 49. Then modern medicine comes along, nutrition, a better work environment. And now if you have had no problems with cancer by the age of 60, statistically, it is quite possible that you will live a steady, healthy life into your high 90s. The world says we retire at 65. What are we going to do with those 30 years? Gail and I are 77 years of age. My grandfather died at 65 or 66. He was burned out in his ministry by the time he hit 60. I'm 77. Gail and I are probably moving at a faster pace today than we moved 20 years ago, doing more, enjoying what we're doing because we're part of the gift that has come to people in the extension of life. Now, what I've done very, very swiftly, and I hope I didn't bore you, was to try to make some suggestions along the line that in every large period of time, there has been signal jolts. And when those jolts happen, the church gets badly shaken, for good or for ill. Some people become resistant to the jolts. Other people embrace the jolts and say, God must be doing something here. Let's find out what it is and and become a part of the new rush of the historical movement of Christian people. I personally am convinced that we are about to see in the next 10 or 15 years some changes in the ways Christians do ministry, changes which will awe us all that we can hardly imagine but we will probably not recognize the institutional form of the church that we know today so well 15 years from now. So those of us in the, are in the second half of life, we need to have to do a lot of thinking about how we make adjustments with younger generations who have their own visions like we had when we were young, who have their own ways of doing things, and how can we amalgamate together and make these things happen. If you're a pastor today or one of that team of people who lead a church, you're facing questions that no one has faced ever before. For example, how do you do church with seven different generations on the same property? When I was a kid, we had three generations. Some of you who are old enough will remember that in those days, one of the major events in the life of a church was what we call Sunday school opening exercises. And for about 30 minutes... 
People who were 80 and 90 would stand next to kids like me who were 7 and 8. We would sing the same songs. We would all go up and put our money on the birthday cake if it was our week. We all sang there's a welcome here to people who'd never been there before. We had people get up and give their names. It was all very, very natural. The church was all one, and the generations knitted together perfectly. The older people were fathers and mothers of a type to the children doesn't happen in most places anymore. Now, if you're a pastor, you have to be speaking on Sunday morning out of the Word of God. You have to preach to people looking at life through the eyes, the lenses of at least six to seven generations. How do you do that? You have teenagers sitting, asking the question, who am I? A product of my parents or a product of my peers? If you're in your 20s, you're asking the question, what am I going to do with my life? And with whom might I do it? If you're in your 30s, you're asking the question, how can I manage all the obligations and responsibilities which the times have thrown on my shoulders? If you're in your 40s, you're likely asking the question, why isn't everything going the way I expected it to go? Why am I disappointed in these things and a little bit surprised by these things? If you're in your 50s, you're asking the question, why is the world beginning to ignore all this thing, these things that I've learned over the years? Who are these young people who want to push me out of the way? If you're in your 60s, you're asking the question, uh, how much longer can I do the things that identify me? If you're in your 70s, where Gail and I are, you're asking the question, how do I deal with all the loss that I'm hearing about every week? And I know for us, every week we hear about somebody we know who's died. We're living with the reality of death. 30 years ago, I sloughed that off. Today, I face it squarely every week. If you're in your 80s, the question often is, when will I die? How will I die? Will it be a slow death? And if you're in those upper decades, the question suddenly comes slamming home with an edge of reality to it. So is there really a heaven out there? When I breathe my last breath, will I really be welcomed into a strange and beautiful place? I know I've said that all my life, but now it's about just a short time away. Your sanctuary is filled with people wrestling with those kinds of questions. So as the church becomes a changing place, how do we minister to all those people? And how do we speak to them about the love of Christ? Now, as I understand it, and I'm the stranger standing here, you're a church that's in the process of having a jolt. Now, let me tell you about two jolts that I've already identified. You're in a new building. That's a jolt. I remember at Grace Chapel where I was a pastor for many years, we built several buildings, and the last of them was a much larger sanctuary. It was, it was very, very large. And we were all very excited about occupying it. And then we got there, and for the first several Sundays, were we disappointed. It wasn't like anything we expected. We sang... And the place was so large that our voices didn't seem to sound very loud anymore. We couldn't figure out where we were going to sit because normally everybody picks the same seat every Sunday, if you haven't noticed. (laughs) The PA system was different, and we heard the singers and the preachers at different levels in different ways, and the echoes off the wall. And A lot of us walked out of there week after week saying, I'm not sure I really like this place. After all those years of saving the money and coming up with all the architecture, it was a jolt. 
And as time went by, the jolt got met by all of the experiences that filled that room, like the buildup on an old cast iron frying pan. People were buried from that room. People were married in that room. Children were dedicated in that room. Folks came forward on certain Sundays and knelt at the altar and received Christ as Savior. After two or three years, that place became home. But it was a jolt to us at first. A bigger jolt that you're getting yourselves involved in now is a change in pastoral leadership. In the next one to two years, there will be different people standing up at this place. They will speak in different ways, with different rhythms, with different sound of voice. They'll have a different sense of humor. They will be people who care about certain issues that you've never heard about before. They're likely to be younger, so they will speak from a younger perspective. They will have fresh and new ideas. How are you going to handle that? What kind of a welcome will you give to the people who come along that God has chosen? How will you say an appropriate goodbye to the people who have served you so warmly and so well? That's all a jolt. And it's received in the same way that these men had to face the situation back there 2,000 years ago when they had to say goodbye to Paul, their pastoral leader. So every one of you in this room, regardless of your age or station of life or how long you have been a part of this particular assembly of Christians, you have something to think about, to talk about, to pray about. Let me offer you four or five quick ideas which will do a little more than just simply, I hope, stir up a few thoughts and give you something to discuss in in the coming uh, weeks and months as you get deeper and deeper into this jolting moment in the life of your congregation. I, I don't know that these are in priority order. Maybe one of them is, but these questions. Is this not a time in the next year as a congregation to take a whole new look at your vision and ask yourself if you really find comfort in the fact that the congregation as a whole, is on track with the Holy Spirit's design for this particular collection of people. What is your vision? You know, when a church starts, it almost, see if you could watch me spatially try to demonstrate this. Almost every church starts because some person or some group sensed an opportunity somewhere. I have no idea what the history of this church is, but I'm going to wager that there was a day and maybe even no one knows when the day was, when, when someone said to somebody else, you know, up in that Bergen Park area, there's a beautiful possibility for a certain kind of church. And if we could establish it there, my, it would be wonderful. So for a, a while, people just keep talking about this opportunity that's out there. Should we do anything about it? And then finally someone comes along, watch, I just moved now, and they said, you know, I've been listening to you guys, and this is the vision that I hear God giving us. This is what would be possible. We could do this and this and this and this, and it just may work. And some people would say, oh, I don't know. And other people would say, that's the greatest idea since sliced bread. But you've gone from an, op- from an opportunity to a vision of how this could work. And then sometime a little while, while later, a, a group of people say, you know, that opportunity is staring us square in the face, and here's the vision that we think God's got. Let's try it. Let's experiment. 
Let's have some Bible studies, or let's have a small group, or let's get together for some experimental times of worship, and let's just see if God smiles. I bet you there was a time when that happened. Then one day, because that initiative is, has, that, that idea or initiative has worked so long, a few people say, let's keep on doing it. And now the fire has come into a blaze. And a small group of people, 35, 50, 80, start getting together on a regular time for certain purposes, to be with each other's children, to give the teenagers some kind of connection, to help young families, to make sure that older people are being tapped for their wisdom and their spiritual depth. And, and, and it, begins to, it begins to grab the imagination of people and suddenly you stop meeting in some public school room and there's a little building that's built as people scrape it all together. And that leads to a time when you have an organization. We've gone from this simple initiative to now we've got a sophisticated operation. We've got Sunday school that's age-graded. We've got music programs. We're paying people a few bucks a week to help us and this, that, and the other thing. And we've become an organization. Now, here's where it gets tough. Because after a little while, as things grow and people get used to doing it, we become an institution. And the thing that separates an institution from back what happened here is that those folks are doing what they do over and over and over again, but they've lost the vision. They've forgotten how they got into motion. They have somehow failed to keep on appreciating the days that the Spirit of God spoke and called simple people into motion. So over here... We may have a lovely building and a very complex program and a staff of 10 or 15 or 20 people. And we may be accepted in the community as one more institution, but as people come and go week after week, the complaints arise, people fall into different kinds of party spirit, and you see this thing called a church, and it's just, it's doing nice things, maybe doing good things, but the vision has been forgotten. And when you get to this moment, you form of the trap that untold numbers of churches fall apart, fall around in this world. They reach a point 20, 30, 40 years down this line. And people come and they go through worship, but it's the same every week. They leave with no sense of a touch from God. They leave boiled up in their own difficulties. And finally, one by one, they drop out. Some people to nothing. Other people to other congregations where it looks to them there's more excitement going on. And now the whole thing goes into decline. What could have stopped that? Well, what could have stopped that is if there had been some leaders over here in the progression between initiative and organization who kept maintaining the vision, the memory of God's place in the group, and kept calling the people to certain biblical convictions and values for which the church exists. The church that Gail and I were so much a part of for a large part of our life was called Grace Chapel. It started just like I've described. 
It started meeting with a small group of people who had a Bible study every week for several years. And then they said, wouldn't it be fun if we could have a worship service here in our own town? Because they were all splitting and going other directions to other cities to churches. So let's try doing it in our place. And one of the couples said, well, we've got a finished basement. You could meet in our house. So 25 or 30 people met for a little while in this basement until they got outnumbered. And so they rented space in a local community building and met there for a year, a few years. And then they got to the time when they bought a piece of property and started building buildings. Gail and I became a part of it at that point. And one day, because the population surge in our area of Boston began to move in and industry was coming in, this church just, just kind of exploded in size. But with the explosion of size came the jolts. And we found ourselves always threatened to going from God's vision to just being an institution. And the thing that stopped us from falling into this trap was some godly men and women like many of you who never forgot the vision. There was a man in our congregation who typifies everything I'm trying to say. His name was Roland Redman. Roland was not like most people in the church. A lot of our people were fairly affluent. Roland was not. He was a salesman. Um, He had a daughter and a wife, and they lived in a very simple home. But Roland had something that every church desperately needs, and some churches never get. He had the gift of faith. And when everybody else was filled with doubt, Roland Redmond was in touch with heaven. We would have these business names. Now, you've got to understand, we lived in New England. In New England, the word no is a very popular word. And we would have these business meetings, you know, when we wanted to build a building or hire a new staff member or launch a new program or elevate the budget. We'd have to have these Dumb business meetings. And if you're a pastor, you hate business meetings most of the time. I have bad dreams about business meetings. <laughs> and, and so we would get into these meetings, and the moderator of the meeting would present some program or idea that we needed the congregation to approve, and there'd be this discussion time, and all over the sanctuary, people would stand. We can't do that. Uh, the economy's not good, or we've got unemployment at a new height, or this church is growing too fast, and I don't know a lot of the people here. And then there was always the pious person who stood up and said, I know the church is growing fast numerically, but what we need to be is a church that grows spiritually deep. Boy, how do you answer that one? You know. So for 30 or 35 minutes, you'd have all these negative comments, and Gail and I would sit off to one side listening to all this, and I'd say to Gail, we're going to lose this one. Tonight, Grace Chapel is making a decision to go backwards. But I would always fail to remember the moment when, when Roland Redmond would stand up. He was the only layperson who seemed to be allowed to use the microphone. Who was going to tell him no? And he would walk down the aisle and he'd come up and he'd stand at the microphone like this. He had granny glasses like this, sit on, fold his arms like this, stand still, put his chin in his chest. And he'd stand there in silence for two or three minutes. Drove us nuts. We thought the old man was having a heart attack or something was wrong. And then suddenly he'd go like this. He'd go, you people really disappoint me. You know, you really disappoint me. 
why I have been a part of this place for years and I have seen the hand of God blessing over and over and over again, helping us, equipping us to do things much bigger than this. And the people went to their knees. They found the money. They made the sacrifice. And look what God has done. And listen to you tonight. I'm so disappointed. Go sit down. The moderator would stand up and say, all in favor, say aye, and everybody say aye. (laughs) And every once in a while, some church would send a committee to Grace Chapel, and they'd want to meet with me as the lead pastor. You know, tell us why Grace Chapel is growing. You know, is it your preaching? Is it your stellar leadership? And I'd sit there and say, I don't think it's either one of those. No, I think it's Roland Redmond. I think it's Roland Redmond and a few others like him, men and women, both young and old, who've never forgotten the vision. And in this period of time leading up to a transition, when you, like the Ephesian church, will have to say goodbye to a generation of pastoral leadership that has served you so beautifully and so well, and say hello to a new generation of leadership, Will you be able to maintain the vision? Don't expect a few paid leaders to do that for you. It has to lie resident in the heart of all of you. So in the next year, it would be a very good discussion to think over and over again, what is the vision that God called us into action to do? And where is it in its maturity? And where must we go backwards and recover forgotten things? And where must we go to initiate some new and novel things that God expects us to do in reflection of the changing times in which we're living? Just in a matter of a minute or two, let me give you four words that I think will be a large part of the core of that vision. The first word that comes to me is the word worship. Healthy, wonderful Churches find their strength, first of all, in the acts of worship. In those moments, particularly on Sunday morning, when the body of believers get together in all of those generations I mentioned a few moments ago, and they fill a room like this, and they form a choir, as it were, and they sing together songs that everyone knows as time goes by, songs that reach deep into our past, and bring tears to the eyes of older people. Songs that are fresh and new, which speak into the age in which we live. And we old people must learn to love and embrace those new songs. And we who are young must learn to revere and respect the songs that our forefathers and mothers have sung for so long. We get together on Sunday morning and we pray. We speak to God about our joy that he's present to us. We speak about our cares one for another. We speak about the world that is so broken and in need of the gospel of Jesus. We ask God in prayer for illumination to understand the word as it's taught. And we send one another out the door at the end of worship with the benediction prayer that sends us with a blessing for the next six days that all of us must live in this world. We read the Bible together. We have times to listen to the Word of God as it's preached and taught in such a way that it gives us takeaways that take us out the door at the end of the morning, equipping us to live offensively, not defensively, in the larger world. We worship. 
And in the next year, you're going to want to ask yourself the question, when people come to this place to worship on Sunday morning, is the spirit of Jesus really here so that everyone gets it? The second word that comes to me is the word, this is going to batter a few of you, continuous conversion. We've been largely a part of a movement that has put a very, very deep emphasis upon a person accepting Christ as Savior, and so it should always be. But we need to be telling more to people than just accepting Christ as Savior. But there's a sense in which I accept Christ every day as my life enlarges and I become aware more and more of things within me and in my mind that I've never talked to Jesus about. I'm 77 I'm still in need of a form of conversion every day. And sometimes I say to people, just to kind of get their juices going, would it surprise you if I told you that I told Jesus that I was going to follow him again this morning? I tell Gail quite often that I marry her every day. She asks me sometimes if I I got my job of marrying her done for that day because there's no evidence that that's there. Uh, (laughs) But just as I, I try to refresh my marriage vows to Gail after 55 years, so I like to refresh my promises to Jesus that I will be a true follower to this day. So conversion is a very important part of that vision. Worship. Conversion. Then the third word is community. Are we just a church like a supermarket where people come and take products off the shelf and then leave? Or are we a family of families? where deep friendships are formed. We care for each other. We ask questions of each other. We we love on each other's children. We care for the lonely people who are older folks who have been forgotten in most churches. What kind of a community are we? Is this a place of mutual generosities? Without community, the church doesn't last long. And the last word I made up, because I'm tired of some of the old words, but part of the vision is sentness. God sends us out the door off church property to be influences in the world for the next six days, in the places where we work, in the places where we study at school, in the communities and the homes in which we live. And each day in silent and in verbal and in active ways, We are sprinkling the grace of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And through the week, we are drained of God's grace in us as we give it away to other people. Some of us take that sentence and we go to other countries. They call us missionaries. Others of us take our sentence and we go to the marketplace and we try to make a difference in the places where we work. Others of us in school. Others of us in the place where our homes and condos and apartments. But sentness is the bottom line of the church. Every person is sent. So I gave you five words. Vision, worship, conversion, community, sentness. All need to be dredged up and rediscussed in this coming year so that when new leadership moves into place, It's not them coming to you with a program. It's you saying to them, we have a vision and we want you to help us to achieve it. Because this is how God has spoken. 
One of my favorite characters in all of history is John Wesley, and most of you will remember his name as the founder of the Methodist Church. Wesley became a follower of Jesus for all practical purposes in the years around 1730 or 1740. Went off to Oxford, met a few other people, and he became a traveling evangelist. At about the time that Wesley was achieving his maturity as a young adult, there came about in England something called the Industrial Revolution. And in the space of about 15 to 20 years, tens and tens of thousands of men left the farms and the villages of rural England and went to the factory cities, Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield, and other places to work in humongous factories where they worked sometimes seven days a week, 10 and 12 hours a day. They went into the mines. They built locomotives, all kinds of stuff. And and it was a revolution of a, a very powerful kind. But the Church of England, which was the dominant Christian presence in those days, if it was a presence, failed to follow these men of this generation that went to the cities. So they were left without any spiritual witness, any sense of Jesus, no notion of the cross, or anything that we would say is core to the Christian message. There was no sentness. And Wesley saw the opportunity and the vision. And you could say he got on his horse and he went to the places where England's men were now at work. And he preached the gospel to them at 5 a.m. in the morning before they went into the factory. He preached the gospel at 7 o'clock at night when they were coming out of the mines. And within a short period of time, all the major industrial cities of England would feel the impact of Wesley and the people who came to work with him. And the church in its sentness had a whole new movement that probably saved England from a violent revolution. Whenever you see a Methodist church today, remember that it has its historical roots in this man 20, 225 years ago. But I raised Wesley's name for two quick reasons. One to say, this is a man who illustrates this whole thing that I mentioned a few moments ago about vision and opportunity and, and initiative. He did that. And he changed the world, in effect, in his generation. But you know how it all started with Wesley? This is a story that not many people know. Wesley was on a ship going from Georgia in our new world back in the 1740s back to England. And on board that ship was a small group of people who were Moravian missionaries. They were German. And they were coming back home. And in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, there suddenly blew up an enormous storm. I mean, it was really life-threatening. And the English people on the ship were just terrified, screaming, crying, just berserk. But back at the fantail of the ship was a small group of people called Moravians, and they were worshiping. They were singing the psalms. They were reading the Bible as the waves were crashing over the edges or the decks of the ship. And Wesley went back and he watched this. And he couldn't believe that people could be so calm. And he said to one of the leaders when it was all over, were you not afraid? No, the man said, we were not afraid. Weren't your women scared? No, they were not scared. 
Weren't your children terrified? No. None of us are afraid to die. We know that Jesus will be centered to all that happens. And that led to the conversion of John Wesley. And through him, the conversion of tens of millions of people down through the next generations who raised the bar in what it means to be followers of Christ. And that's the choice that many of you, as part of this wonderful church, will have to make in the next year. My hope is that you'll do it that way. Thanks for letting me talk with you. I hope that some of this has sparked some thinking that will cause conversation in the coming weeks and months. Um, I've enjoyed being with you.